In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Mother of us all. Amen. So, how are you? I mean, I mean it, really. How are you? Good? <laughs> well, I ask because I think we all know how ridiculous and overscheduled and exhausting this season can be. This is a time when many of us are even more overscheduled than we are the rest of the year. When we work too hard to overperform for others, when we try to put on a happy face or a smile for the Christmas card, or when we try to buy the right presents, when we try to be that hallmarky version of normal that doesn't exist, <laughs> when we try to reach a standard that literally none of us are capable of reaching, this time, this season, is a time of putting on airs and of feeling not good enough. And in the midst of all of this chaos and expectation is a weird thing, because while on the one hand we're expected to do it all and function at high levels during this time of year, we are something else happens at the same time. We're experiencing something else. All of the red and green and the stockings and the trees and the repetitive music and so much baking <laughs> can sedate us. It can make us somehow so overloaded and distracted from the world itself that we start to feel numb to the goings-on of this planet. And a lot of us are happy with that because we're exhausted after all. We're so exhausted. This week, let alone this year, has been filled with tragedy and pain and heartbreak. Fires rage in California. Women continue to utter the refrain, Me too. The people of Israel and Palestine, Jesus' homeland, are facing unrest and civil war. It's so much. It's too much. It's too much. So the distraction, the sedation of the holidays is an almost welcome thing this year. Because the exhaustion we feel is deep in our bones. And the temptation is to pine for a distraction. Any distraction. Now Ezekiel, the prophet in today's reading, I think he knew this temptation. Living in exile in Babylon, far from his home, Jerusalem, he must have been so exhausted. His people knew pain, destruction, and death. They were lonely and isolated, and they were so very tired. And as a leader in that place, that tired, sad, scary place, Ezekiel must have been overwhelmed. He must have felt pressure to put on airs, to try to be positive, to be whatever the hallmarky version of normal was when Ezekiel was alive. Ezekiel must have hoped and prayed for something to distract him from all of it, for something to make him numb to the world and the empire around him, to just help him forget. 
to make it all not real for a while. Because Ezekiel, too, felt exhaustion deep in his bones. And God notices this. God notices how exhausted Ezekiel is, and God decides to step in. God shows up in Ezekiel's presence and offers a reply to his despair. But as usual, in this book that is ours, God's answer is not what Ezekiel or what we might expect. No, God grants Ezekiel a vision. A vision of a valley of dried up, dismembered bones. Now, we like to portray this vision in fun and cutesy ways. We've written jazzy and silly songs about it. If you know the song Dem Bones, you know what I'm talking about. We've drawn hilarious and weird pictures of it. And we've told this story over the years in metaphorical ways so that we don't have to think about how absolutely scary and kind of gross this story actually is. And I think that tendency to make this story palatable and to make it kid-song-friendly is part of the same tendency that I just was mentioning. The tendency to separate ourselves as much as possible from the news headlines and the brokenness and the pain of this world. But honestly, honestly, this story is gory. And it's terrifying. And I don't know about you, but hearing the snapping of those sinews just now made me shudder a little. It's gross. And that's the point. This place that Ezekiel is looking at is literally the valley of the shadow of death. This is where God puts Ezekiel. And God doesn't stop there. God takes Ezekiel on a little tour. God shows Ezekiel that this is a place where not even a shadow of life exists. The marrow has dried up. The bones are dismembered. They are cracked. They are exposed. Something horrific has happened here. An event that involved disjointed and desiccated and ghastly death. And God shows Ezekiel this Because God wants Ezekiel to wake up and to shudder. See, Ezekiel is called to be a prophet. We are called to be prophets. And in order for Ezekiel to be a prophet, God needs Ezekiel to wake up, to resist the temptation to turn away and hide, and instead he needs Ezekiel to lean in to what is the horrible injustice of this world. God needs Ezekiel to see the truth of what's happening in Israel, to see these bones, this valley of death, and to resist the temptation to trivialize it or make jokes about it or make it go away. God needs Ezekiel to shudder, and God needs us to shudder too. And God needs it, Because only then, only then can we even begin to understand what God's project of new life in this world means. So after God takes Ezekiel around and he shows him the horrific, desecrated, unjust sights, 
God asks Ezekiel a question. Ezekiel, can these bones live? This question is flabbergasting, and it's a little appalling, and Ezekiel can hardly answer. He mutters, oh Lord God, you know. It's a non-answer. And I've been thinking about this question that God asks Ezekiel a lot this week, as we've seen so much horror and pain and death in the news, because when we actually take time to look at the valley of the shadow of death and shudder in response to it, it feels like the only possible answer to God's question is no. No, these bones can't live. How could you even ask such a question? How could dried up, cracked, exposed, marrowless bones live? You can't resuscitate bones. But friends, that's the thing. We don't belong to a God of resuscitation. The God we know isn't interested in putting things back together the way they were or in giving CPR to the status quo. God's not interested in the powers that already are or the unjust and corrupt order of the world. The God we know is not a God of resuscitation. The God we know, the God we belong to, is a God of resurrection. Resurrection of life through and after death, of complete and total transformation, of what Mary sang about as she awaited the birth of Jesus, of the mighty being cast down from their thrones, of the uplifting of the poor, the vulnerable, of the complete and total destruction of the forces of death and evil in this world, of the downfall of racism, of sexism, of nationalism, all of it, all of it. We are people of resurrection, folks. We are prophets. We are called to announce the hope of new life and justice in and to this world. And that's a scary and a hard job. And we can't do it by ourselves. But the good news is that resurrection doesn't come out of nowhere. No, resurrection needs a little thing called... Ruach, and it's a weird and a silly word. It's an awesome word, too. I invite you to say it with me, to practice, practice hearing what this sounds like on your lips. Ruach. You have to like, gargle at the end a little, I think. Ruach. Yeah. Yeah, practice it, because you're, you're going to be praying for it in a minute. Ruach. This weird, silly word is a Hebrew word. Ruach is one of those words that means so much more than what one English translation of it could mean. Ruach is God's breath. It is wind. It is the mighty Holy Spirit. It is the breath that keeps all of us alive. It is a living, dynamic, whooshing thing that knits people together and shatters injustice and makes dead, dismembered bones live When Ruach shows up, nothing is left unchanged. And in this story, it is Ruach that comes from the four corners of the earth to breathe life into this valley of death. It is Ruach that resurrects, that gives hope. It is Ruach that changes the status quo. In today's story, we learn that we are prophets who are called to lean in and to notice the dried up, 
bones in this world. But we also learn that when we do this hard, scary work, we don't do it alone. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death with God. And when we cry over news headlines and when our heart breaks for the world, God cries too. God's heart breaks too. And then after we've shuddered and noticed and paid attention, God asks us, like God asks Ezekiel, where our hope lies. Do we believe enough in the power of God's mighty, awesome ruach, God's breath, to believe that these bones can live? Do we trust that even when we ourselves feel like bone, when we feel exhausted and spent and like our tear ducts have simply dried up, that God's ruach can mean something for our lives, for this world? Friends, in this Advent season of hope and expectation for God's entrance into this world as a living, breathing person, God goes with us. God shows up in water and in bread and wine and nudges us, asking us, like God asked Ezekiel, to prophesy to these dry bones, to call upon Ruach to spark resurrection and new life. Because we are Ruach people. We are resurrection people. Let us never, ever, ever lose sight of God's power and promise in the midst of this very broken world. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we pray that you might send your holy and creative spirit into this place. Breathe your holy ruach here into the lives of those gathered and over the whole expanse of this earth. Gather up your life and power from the four winds and resurrect your people and world that we might find the life, the relationship, and the strength to prophesy to these dry bones as you give us the confidence that where your breath resides, where your ruach lives, new life occurs. Grant us sure and steady hope in the valley of the shadow of death. Amen.